Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, back at my house with my real microphone, so hopefully that sounds a bit better for your ear holes. We're talking about War and Peace, Book 3, Chapter 5. What are your thoughts about Nikolai Bolkonsky's, old man Bolkonsky's, decision to let Maya decide for herself whether to marry Anatole? Does this confirm or contradict what your previous your previous opinions of him? He's a mixed he's a he's a confusing character, old Bolkonsky. He is uh mean. He's old fashioned. Um but he's also he's he's got some principles about him which are quite admirable. And I think for him to say, you know, he's got a clear preference. Um, but for him to say, I leave it up to my daughter, that's that's something. I, sp- I think especially back in that time and place, that's that's something. Um, I really don't like the way he um, belittled her about it, the way he did it. You know, he still kind of steered her in the direction that he wanted her to go and um, he'd be, he'd be quite harsh with her. What do you imagine Maya's answers might have been if she hadn't encountered Anatole and Mademoiselle Boring, if she didn't find them uh, hooking up, whispering sweet nothings in each other's ears? Do you think she was being honest about her desire to look after Emily? Prince, uh, sorry, Brian E. Denton said, The old prince is quite liberal in his insistence that Mary be empowered to decide for herself. This is odd because he's a tyrant in his home and a jerk. I love it. Yeah. Mary is 100% sincere. Mary is um, Mary's a beautiful character uh, within this book and within literature in general. Mary is a really beautiful character. Um, definitely in my top three. You know, there's about five or six characters in my top three in this novel. It's very, but uh, she's definitely in there. DJ Ed Maroz said, Him looking down so disdainfully on modern ways, like educating your children in foreign countries... I do not know if I misremember this, but I think he also prefers the traditional Russian garments. And wasn't his dislike for modernization also hinted as one of the reasons for him leaving the court and settling in the countryside? Is making this even more hilarious. His nickname Le Roy Prusse is a clear reference to Frederick Wilhelm I, who was also a kind of well-meaning tyrant. Worthwhile to look up how he mistreated his son Frederick too who later went on to earn himself the title of the Great. Bolkonsky is an outright rude person with an emphasis on the first, so it does not come as a surprise that he holds a strong dislike for the sly Kuragan bunch. He's quite shrewd and and switched on, and so yeah, I think it makes sense that he's so onto them. Uh, I love it how he does the prediction, yet the predictable yet unthinkable, how can you call your daughter ugly in front of guests? crazy he's so mean <laughs> um Melavia said i think that prince bolkonski lets maya decide for herself because he wanted her to choose not to marry but could not tell her so i think he got the ideal outcome didn't he he didn't have to um, tell her not to do it but she still didn't do it i think maya is a people pleaser and might have tried to please her father by marrying if she hadn't seen her friend in the garden and decided to try to please her instead. I don't know about anyone else, but I am immensely relieved that Maya didn't marry Anatole. She's so pure and selfless and good, and I don't know that he would have been discreet about his affairs after they married. 
I think that would have broken her heart since she's so pious. Um, Beard and Glasses 1994 says, While I like the feminist moment from Bolkonski, I still don't like him as a person. Yes, he is allowing his daughter to choose for herself, but only after he called her ugly and plain just the night before and in front of company, nonetheless. I really feel for Maya. I wish her happiness, even if I don't fully agree with how religious she is. Yeah. Um, old Bolkonski is just... Oh, he's a great character, isn't he? But he is... I mean, you'd be scared to be in a room with him, no matter who you were. <laughs> you know, um, really well-written character but definitely a, a massive jerk. Um, fun to watch, though. Sophie Metropolis says, I thought of Mar Mary's father as despicably insincere. He does that thing of letting her daughter choose because he knows it's not going to work out for Mary. Yeah, exactly right. Like, he lets her choose, quote-unquote, but really, he only lets her choose because he knows that it's probably going to go his way. Maybe. Uh, does he, though? Does he? Or is that just how it played out? I think because he then, he lets her choose, and then in the same breath, he, he says basically, oh, yeah, and she'll, you know, why don't, you're free to marry him, and he can bring along Boreen and, you know, have a side piece, essentially. So um, he pretty much tells her his, his uh, view of the whole thing, um, which I think is a good I think it's good that he told her what was happening between Anatole and Boreen. I think there's a million and one kinder ways for him to have told her, though. He could have done it in a gentle way, like, hey, listen, um, I know you've, you're free to choose who you want to marry, and he's a handsome young man, but I do think he might have been flirting a little bit, and I'm not sure how into you he is. I don't know, something like that. For example... There's a million and other ways that he could have said it rather than what he did say. All right, now, guys, I didn't get a chance to do any translating today, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to be reading Maud. And I reckon tomorrow... Uh, what have I got on tomorrow? We'll see how we go tomorrow. I'd like to do a, another, tra another chapter tomorrow. That would be good. Chapter... What are we up to? Six goes like this. It was long since the Rostovs had news of Nicholas. Not till midwinter was the Count at last handed a letter addressed in his son's handwriting. On receiving it, he ran on tiptoe to his study in alarm and haste, trying to escape noticed, closed the door, and began to read the letter. Anna Mikhailovna, who always knew everything that passed in the house, on hearing of the arrival of the letter, went softly into the room and found the Count with his, in his hand, sobbing and laughing at the same time. Anna Mikhailovna, though her circumstances had improved, was still living with the Rostovs. My dear friend, said she, in a tone of pathetic inquiry, prepared to sympathise in any way. The Count sobbed yet more. Nikolenka, a, a letter, w w was wounded, my darling boy, the Countess, promoted to be an officer. Thank God, how to tell the little Countess... Anna Mikhailovna sat down beside him with her own handkerchief, wiping the tears from his eyes and from the letter. Then, having dried her own eyes, she confronted the Count and decided that at dinner, until tea time, she would prepare the Countess and after tea, with God's help, would inform her. At dinner, Anna Mikhailovna talked the whole time about 
the war news and about Nikolenka twice asked when the last letter had been received from him, though she knew that already, and remarked that they might very likely be getting a letter from him that day. Each time that these hints began to make the countess anxious and she glanced uneasily at the count and at Anna Mikhailovna, the latter very adroitly turned the conversation to insignificant matters. Natasha, who of the whole family was the most gifted with the capacity to feel any shades of intonation, look and expression, pricked up her ears from the beginning of the meal and was certain that there was some secret between her father and Anna Mikhailovna, it, that it had something to do with her brother and that Anna Mikhailovna was preparing them for it. Bold as she was, Natasha, who knew how sensitive her mother was to anything relating to Nikolenka, did not venture to ask any questions at dinner. But she was too excited to eat anything and kept wriggling about on her chair regardless of her governess's remarks. After dinner, she rushed headlong after Anna Mikhailovna and, dashing at her, flung herself on her neck as soon as she overtook her in the sitting room. Auntie, darling, do tell me what it is. Nothing, my dear. No, dearest sweet one, honey, I won't give up. I know you know something. Anna Mikhailovna shook her head. You are a little sly, Boots, she said. A letter from Nikolenka, I'm sure of it, exclaimed Natasha, reading confirmation in Anna Mikhailovna's face. But for God's sake, be careful. You know how it may affect your mamma. I will, I will. Only tell me you won't. Then I will go and tell at once. Anna Mikhailovna, in a few words, told her the content of the letter, on condition that she would tell no one. No, on my true word of honour, said Natasha, crossing herself, I won't tell anyone. And she ran off at once to Sonia. Nikolenka wounded a letter, she announced, in gleeful triumph. Nicholas was all Sonia said, instantly turning white. Natasha, seeing the impression of the news of her brother's wound produced on Sonia, felt for the first time the sorrowful side of the news. She rushed to, to Sonia, hugged her, and began to cry. A little wound, but he has been made an officer. He is well now. He wrote himself, said she through her tears. There now, it's true that all you women are crybabies, remarked Petra, pacing the room with large, resolute strides. Now I'm very glad, very glad indeed, that my brother has distinguished himself so you are all blubberers and understand nothing. Natasha smiled through her tears. You haven't read the letter? asked Sonia. No, but she said that it was all over and that he's now an officer. Thank God, said Sonia, crossing herself. But perhaps she deceived you. Let us go to Mama. Petra paced the room in silence for a time. If I'd been in Nikolenka's place, I would have killed even more of those Frenchmen, he said. What nasty brutes they are. I'd have killed so many that there'd have been a heap of them. Hold your tongue, Petcha. What a goose you are. I'm not a goose, but they are who cry about trifles, said Petcha. Do you remember him? Natasha suddenly asked, after a moment's silence. Sonia smiled. Do I remember Nicholas? No, Sonia. But do you remember so that you remember him perfectly? Remember everything, said Natasha, with an expressive gesture, evidently wishing to give her words a very definite meaning. I remember Nikolenka too. I remember him well, she said. But I don't remember Boris. I don't remember him a bit. What? You don't remember Boris? asked Sonia in surprise. It's not that I don't remember. I know what he's like. But not as I remember Nikolenka. Him I just shut my eyes and remember. But Boris? No. She shut her eyes. No, there's nothing at all. Oh, Natasha, said Sonia, looking ecstatically and earnestly at her friend, as if she did not consider her worthy to hear what she meant to say, and as, as, and as if she were saying it to someone else, with whom joking was out of the question. I am in love with your brother, once and for all, 
and whatever may happen to him or me shall never cease to love him as long as I live. Natasha looked at Sonia with wondering and inquisitive eyes and said nothing. She felt that Sonia was speaking the truth that there was such love in Sonia, as Sonia was speaking of, but Natasha had not yet felt anything like it. She believed it could be, but did not understand it. Shall you write to him? she asked. Sonia became thoughtful. The question of how to write to Nicholas and whether she ought to write tormented her. Now that she was already an officer, sorry, now that he was already an officer and a wounded hero, would it be right to remind him of herself, and as it might seem, of the obligations to her he had taken on himself? I don't know, I think if he writes, I will write too, she said, blushing. And you won't feel ashamed to write to him? Sonia smiled. No. And I should be ashamed to write to Boris. I am not going to. Why should you be ashamed? Well, I don't know. It's awkward, and will make me ashamed. And I know why she'd be ashamed, said Petra, offended by Natasha's previous remark. It's because she was in love with that fat one in the spectacles. That was how Petra described his namesake, the Count Bezikov. And now she's in love with that singer. He meant Natasha's Italian singing master. That's why she's ashamed. Petra, you're stupid, said Natasha. Not more stupid than you, madame, said the nine-year-old Petra, with the air of an old brigadier. The countess had been prepared by Anna Mikhailovna's hints at dinner. On retiring to her own room, she sat in an armchair, her eyes fixed on a miniature portrait of her son on the lid of a snuffbox, while the tears kept coming into her eyes. Anna Mikhailovna, with the letter, came on tiptoe to the countess's door and paused. Don't come in, she said to the old count who was following her. Come later. And she went in, closing the door behind her. The count put his ear to the keyhole and listened. At first he heard the sound of indifferent voices, then Anna Mikhailovna's voice alone in a long speech, then a cry, then silence, then both voices together with glad intonations, and then footsteps. Anna Mikhailovna opened the door. Her face wore the proud expression of a surgeon who had just performed a difficult operation and admits the public to appreciate his skill. It's done she said to the Count, pointing triumphantly to the Countess, who sat holding in one hand the snuff-box with its portrait, and in the other the letter, and pressing them alternately to her lips. When she saw the Count, she stretched out her arms to him, embraced his bald head, over which she again looked at the letter and the portrait, and in order to press them again to her lips, she slightly pushed away the bald head. Vera, Natasha, Sonia and Petra now entered the room, and the reading of the letter began. After a brief description of the campaign and the two battles in which he had taken part and his promotion, Nicholas said that he kissed his father's and mother's hands, asking for their blessing, and that he kissed Vera, Natasha and Petra. Besides that, he sent greetings to Monsieur Schelling, Madame Schoss and his old nurse, and asked them to kiss for him dear Sonia, whom he loved and thought of just the same as ever. When she heard this, Sonia blushed so that tears came into her eyes and unable to bear the looks turned upon her, ran away into the dancing hall, whirled around it at full speed with her dress puffed out like a balloon, and flushed and smiling, plumped down on the floor. The Countess was crying. Why are you crying, Mama? asked Vera. From all he says, one should be glad and not cry. This was quite true, but the Count, the Countess, and Natasha looked at her reproachfully. And who is it she takes after? thought the Countess. Nat Nicholas's letter was read over hundreds of times, and those who were considered worthy to hear it had come to the countess, for she did not let it out of her hands. The tutors came, the nurses, Dmitri, and several acquaintances, and the countess reread the letter each time with fresh pleasure, and each time discovered in it fresh proofs of Nikolenka's virtues. 
How strange, how extraordinary, how joyful it seemed that her son, the scarcely perceptible motion of whose tiny limbs she had felt twenty years ago within her, that son about whom she used to have quarrels with the too indulgent count, the son who had first learned to say pear and then granny, that his this son should now be away in a foreign land amid strange surroundings, a manly warrior doing some kind of man's work of his own without help or guidance. The universal experience of ages showing that children do grow imperceptibly from the cradle to manhood did not exist for the Countess. Her son's growth towards manhood at each of its stages had seemed as extraordinary to her as if there had never existed the millions of human beings who grew up in the same way. As twenty years before, it seemed impossible that the little creature who lived somewhere under her heart would ever cry, suck her breast, and begin to speak. So now she could not believe that that little creature could be this strong, brave man, this model son and officer that, judging by this letter, he now was. What a style! How charmingly he describes, said she, reading the descriptive part of the letter. And what a soul! Not a word about himself, not a word about some Denisov or another, though he himself, I dare say, is braver than any of them. He says nothing about his sufferings. What a heart! How like him it is, and how he has remembered everybody, not forgetting anyone. I always said, when he was only so high, I always said. For more than a week, preparations were being made. Rough drafts of letters to Nicholas from the Orly household were written and copied out, while under the supervision of the Countess and the solicitude of the Count, money and all things necessary for the uniform and equipment of the newly commissioned officer was collected. Anna Mikhailovna's practical woman that she was had even managed by favour with army authorities to secure advantageous means of communication for herself and her son. She had opportunities of sending letters to the Grand Duke, Constantine Pavlovich, who commanded the guards. The Rostovs supposed that the Russian guards abroad was quite a definite address, and that if a letter reached the Grand Duke in command of the guards, there, were, there was no reason why it should not reach the Pavlograd Regiment, which was presumably somewhere in the same neighbourhood. And so it was decided to send letters and money by the Grand Duke's courier to Boris, and Boris was to forward them to Nicholas. The letters were from the old count, the countess Petra, Vera, Natasha and Sonia, and finally there were 6,000 rubles for his outfit and various other things the old count sent to his son. Alright, there we go. There's a chapter for you, a little check-in from uh, from old Nicholas Balcon... No, Nicholas Rostov. Not to be confused with Nicholas Balkonsky. Um, very cool. Alright, have your say about that. You know where to go. Thanks for listening and I will see you tomorrow.